Yeah, as Dan said, brilliant to see Sasha and Sarah up there playing and uh, so encouraging to hear such loud singing this morning. Um, I have to say, Contour Community Church has an advantage over Hillview in the singing department um, because they are in this small village hall with wooden walls and wooden floors, so the singing is immediately so loud over there. Um, but today I felt that like we were giving Contour a run for the money with this big high ceiling as well, which is amazing. So thanks, Matthew, for leading us, and uh, just so encouraging just to, to pray and hear the scriptures and be together uh, this morning. Um, the family of God is a wonderful, wonderful gift. Uh, and uh, we, I pray that uh, we will know God's blessing and help now as we turn to his scriptures uh, and look in John chapter 5 this morning. It's interesting that Dan mentions or makes fun of my age because we're going to start thinking about this question, uh, where can you remember what stage of life you were in back in 1984? And I ask that question knowing full well that there are many in the room who were not even in existence in 1984, apart from in the mind of God. And uh, in fact, some of you take a little too much pleasure in highlighting such facts. Isn't that right, Susanna, who at a meeting on Monday night was reveling in her status as uh, not, a, not an 80s child, not a 90s child, but a child of the new millennium. Well, I think that technically makes you a naughty's child, and that has the word naughty in it. So don't get too, too proud of yourself. Um, I ask about 1984, not because, don't worry, I'm not about to take us down some rabbit hole about dystopian futures and surveillance societies, as per the novel, as tempting as that, as tempting as that might be. But I ask about 1984 because that's 38 years ago. And if you were reading along and following, you might have picked up that that's how long the character in our story today had been disabled for, 38 years. Now, we don't know the exact nature of this man's disability, apart from that he is stuck lying on a mat for almost four decades. And we know a few other things, almost certainly, um, when you think about the culture of the day, almost certainly he would have been extremely marginalized in being in that position. He would have been likely looked down on and very much cut off from uh, his society in so many ways. And apparently we know that there's not even people around him to help him. He, he wants to make this journey into the waters and he says, there's not anyone who can help me in. 38 years. That's great suffering. Great need. Just as some of us in this church family have known such difficulty. Years or decades of struggles, pain, uncertainty, depression, loneliness, and so on. Many in our church family have known that, decades. And some of us in this church family haven't known such difficulty. But one of the things about this family that we're part of, one of the blessings of being part of the body of Christ is that we consider all that we go through together. We're actually to feel the joys and sorrows one to another. We are supposed to bear one another's burdens. We're supposed to weep with those who weep. 
We are to participate in each other's lives as we together somehow in the power and the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, we participate in the life of Jesus Christ. This is what fellowship is. This is what communion is. So if we're part of Jesus' church, such suffering, even if you haven't known suffering for many years, even if you haven't been alive for many years, such suffering is profoundly relevant for us, both as we think of our life together as part of the body of Christ, but also just even individually as we look towards the future. Because if you're not in that place of struggle now, then this morning, this week, this year is the time to build strong foundations in your trust and understanding of who God is so that when your life is shaken, your faith in God will not collapse. Suffering and hardship are coming your way. Philippians 1, 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So we're on sacred ground here. We, we should tread carefully when speaking about such things. But we should always hold on to the important fact that suffering is not meaningless in the lives of followers of Jesus. It is in so many places we could look to consider that, but maybe one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we see there that suffering is not meaningless. It is preparing or producing or achieving even, some translations put it for us. Suffering is achieving for us a what? An eternal weight of glory in Christ Jesus. And in this passage, this is an interesting account for us as we consider this man who has been suffering. Because we encounter him and despite him receiving Jesus' amazing healing, amazing restoring power in John chapter 5, he appears to miss the wonder of all that Jesus truly is. And we're going to see this in how Jesus interacts with this man in four different ways I want us to look at this morning. Now, before we look at these four different ways that Jesus interacts, there's, there's a couple of bits of background of this passage. It's a really interesting passage. I just want to share with you a little um, so we understand where we are. So Jesus is back in Jerusalem. It says there in verse 1, I think, yeah, he's come because of one of the feasts of the Jews. This is one of the religious festivals. Now, we don't know which festival it is on this occasion. Sometimes we're told here, we're, we're not told. Lots of people way smarter than me have all sorts of fun over pages and pages of commentaries trying to figure out which religious festival it was, but they all pretty much come to the conclusion that, yeah, we don't really know. So I'm, I'm okay with that. The point here is not actually the time of year that this happens. The important thing is the day that this happens on, as we'll see. Now, where are we? So that's when we are, where are we? We are at the Sheep Gate Cast your mind back to October 2020. I'm sure you all remember the video sermon on Nehemiah chapter 3, where we took a tour around the gate that was being built around Jerusalem, and we came across the Sheep Gate in October 2020 and various other gates as well that day. Now, near the Sheep Gate, we're told here at the start of our passage, is the Pool of Bethesda. 
It's not far from the rebuilt temple, and there are some amazing information online about this place. I love that some, there are some people in this church who are way more fascinated and way more learned than me when it comes to the his, history and the sort of geography and the story of these passages that we're looking at. And some of you come to me every so often and, and, and fire me up about some of the locations and stories of how these passages come together. And and John 5, there's some incredible information online. Um, we were going to put up a picture just now, if Aidan would be so kind. Um, this is uh, a, a, from a model of the second temple uh, from the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. So those little dots there towards the top of the picture, those are people, um, and they're looking down on this model. I didn't even know there was an Israel Museum in Jerusalem, but this is a large model of the second temple. And this is a picture of these two pools down at the bottom, the southern pool on the left and the northern pool on the right. Now, I'm going to include a link uh, to this page when the, when the uh, sermon goes up online, but you can see the blog there at the bottom that it's from. It's a, there's some amazing stuff to, to read and consider there. So the location of these pools were discovered fairly recently in just 1888, and there are some quite amazing archaeological remains there. You can see on this model the five colonnades, so four that surround both the pools, and then the one across the middle that we've read about in the passage just there, although apparently it wouldn't have had a tiled roof as is represented here, so I'm told. But we can read verse 3 together. And in these colonnades, in these covered areas, verse 3, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, for our next bit of background, cast your eye down and let's go on to read the next verse, which what's the verse after verse 3? Verse 4, or is it? Because if you're looking down at your Bible, you might see, unless you have an NASB or a King James Version, you might see that it jumps from verse 3 to verse 5. Dun, dun, dun! What is going on here? Is there some sort of conspiracy going on? Are people deleting verses from the Bible now? Well, don't worry. There's nothing to panic about here. But I did just want to address this. What has happened here is to do with the amazing process of how the Bible has come to us. So this text that we are reading comes to us from a few thousand different Greek manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts of the New Testament. I have to let you know, we're going to look at this later on in John chapter 8 in a bit more detail, but the Bible is one of the most incredible ancient texts. It really, truly stands alone in terms of the sheer volume of early manuscripts and uh, reliable ones that were handed down. And what happened was, over the years, as the manuscripts were copied one to the other, especially, um, well, so what, what, what happened is, as people looked upon these manuscripts that had been copied, especially from discoveries and scholarship from the start of the 20th century, it began to be clear that verse 3, which, as I've said, is still included in the King James or in the NASB, you've got square brackets around it, verse 3 uh, was not part of the original text of John's Gospel. Most likely, your Bible has a little footnote, uh, including what is mentioned there, but this is not part of the much older, much more reliable biblical text. What had happened was it was gradually added in. It doesn't appear to start to show up until about 500 AD. And what happens is as copies were being made, 
sometimes explanations or commentary would be written into margins, either based on locally held cultural beliefs, or it might have been someone inputting some theological commentary on it or something like that, or any number of reasons. And then what happened was these commentary sections would sometimes come to be included in the main text. Now, all that to say that it's virtually certain, no one disagrees really, in terms of modern scholars, that this was not an original part of John's gospel. I, I read that as early as 900 AD, some asterisks, asterisks start to be included um, to sort of highlight that the, the, we should question the legitimacy of this verse. And as I say, from the 20th century onwards, it was held to be very clear that this was not original. So as I said, we're going to look at a much bigger example of this in John chapter 8, in the stoning of the woman uh, and Jesus interjecting there. Because you might have noticed in your Bibles, that whole section is questionable as to whether that should be included in John's gospel. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. What does that mean for how we read the Bible? Does this, should this give us pause for concern? No, anything but actually, uh, but we'll come, we'll come to that when we look at that. The, the, the thing I'm getting at here is we don't need to worry about, if you've looked down to the bottom of your page, about whether an angel of God came to stir the water and, and bring healing and things like that. Now, that could well be the case. That's no problem for God to work in those ways. There's far stranger things that, that happen in the Old Testament and in other parts of the scriptures. But we, the truth is we just don't know. All we know is what is mentioned in verse 7, that the water periodically became stirred. And this could have happened for any number of reasons, not least that some are pretty confident that the flow of water that filled these pools was partly fed from a local natural spring, which could account for the periodic stirring of the waters. Anyway, all of that is just interesting, well, I think it's interesting, uh, background on this passage. I want to get back to the heart of the passage. And as I said, we're going to look at four ways that Jesus interacts with this man. We're wanting to see Jesus' heart for those who are deep in need. That is, if you've not picked up on it yet, that is Jesus' heart for all of us here. The first thing we see in terms of this interaction is Jesus' question to the man. Let's read verse 6 together. When Jesus saw the man lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, surely Jesus knows that he wants to be healed. Jesus can see the condition of this man. He sees that he's been lying in this place, understood to be a place of healing, and he knows that he's been lying there for a very long time. What is the deal with this question? Well, I think it's that Jesus is wanting the man to look inwards at the deepest questions before him. Perhaps some of you can relate to this as you think about the struggles and difficulties you face in your life. You know that things aren't right, but what you want to happen in the midst of that can often be unclear. In our struggles, in our difficulties in life, we can get stuck. We may know from a sort of negative point of view, I don't want to feel like this. Whatever I'm going on just now, I want it gone. I want this away. But as for what we want, 
It's sometimes not clear in the depths of our soul. And in this encounter, the man's response to Jesus' question exposes how we often struggle here. So for a start, he doesn't answer Jesus' question. So do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. He speaks about the water. He speaks about the pool. But Jesus has no need of water's pools or any rituals like this. Jesus doesn't mention the water once in this passage. It never comes up again in this passage. Here's the thing. We can sometimes look for hope in the wrong places. Where are you in your struggles just now? Where are you looking for help, for solutions? Jesus is asking this morning, I think to all of us, do you want to be healed? And how often we can be fixating on a potential solution that we see that maybe isn't happening for us and maybe we want Jesus to deal with that. But that's not responding to the deepest question that Jesus is bringing to us. We can look for hope in the wrong places. Another way we can get stuck here is we can speak of what's limiting us. This is what the man does here. Instead of desperately replying to Jesus' question, yes, I want to be healed, he speaks of what's holding him back. He says, no one's available to help me. He says, others get in ahead of me, which is, which is another thing that we can do in terms of how we respond to this question of Jesus. Let's read the second part of verse 7. There's no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. This is another way that we can get stuck when pondering our struggles, thinking of how others are doing better than us. It's such an understandable response. Indeed, we should be encouraged. If you're struggling with that, why is this person doing well? And I'm in this mess here. (laughs) The, The worship book of the Bible, the Psalms, are full of people crying that out to God. God, why am I in this position? Why are you prospering others who care zero for you, and I'm downtrodden and and trampled upon. So there's all these ways that this man responds to Jesus' question, which we can relate to, I think, in our own lives. But Jesus' question here invites us to consider, what do we really want in life, in struggle for our future? Don Carson writes on this passage, the first step towards wholeness is always deep desire for it. Jesus did not ask the man, do you want me to help you get into the water? And Jesus doesn't always ask us, do you want this sum of money to help you through the financial struggles that you are in? Do you want this person to respond in this way to you, to make something wrong right? Do you want to know this particular sense of calling in your life? Do you want this particular job, friend, relationship, relief? There are so many different solutions that we see to the issues that we're struggling with, but if we're not careful, we can end up missing the true, deeper wholeness that Jesus wants for us. What do you really want this morning? What is at the heart of your deepest desires, if you're honest before God? What do you truly want? Do you want to know more than anything 
deep, lasting restoration from and with Jesus. That's what Jesus asks the man. That's the first thing. Second thing in this interaction we see is Jesus' grace and power. The answer to the man's problems was not in access or lack of access to a pool, but was found in Jesus. Just as a little aside again, just if you're interested in things like this, there is a wonderful ongoing theme here so far in John's gospel as to how Jesus interacts with water in John's gospel. So Craig Keener writes this, Jesus replaces not only John's baptism, chapter one, ritual purity, the wedding at Cana, proselyte baptism, Nicodemus in chapter three, and the Samaritan water of Jacob's well, chapter four, So water, 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 water. Jesus replaces all of these, but also the water of a popular healing cult. The point is this, Jesus alone is the answer to the man's problems and, my friends, to our problems. And it's his his grace and power together that we see here in this passage. Grace, grace receiving from God that which we do not deserve. Jesus is so kind to this man. As we've mentioned, he doesn't even answer the question that Jesus asks. Do you want to be healed? I've no one to put me in the pool. The water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And also, Jesus knew what was coming after he would heal this man. So there's a few interesting things in this passage. And and by the way, just if you're interested, you might be thinking of another healing in John chapter 9. There's a lot of similarities here in the story and how it unfolds, and you can compare and contrast the different responses of the men who are healed here. But in this story, in John chapter 5, he shows no gratitude to Jesus for having been healed. When he's questioned by the religious leaders, he blames Jesus. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And even later on, now that he knows that the Jews are not happy with what has unfolded here, and he knows who this man is, they don't know at that point who Jesus is, but he eventually finds out. When he finds Jesus, he goes and dobs him in to these religious leaders. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, Jesus knew that all of this was going to unfold. Leslie Newbigin, another commentator on this passage, writes this, this man has nothing to recommend him except his need. (laughs) But Jesus still gives this amazing gift of healing. What grace! The grace of Jesus together in action with the power of Jesus. There's no blessing of God if there's a kindness there, but no power to to do anything with that kindness. But Jesus just speaks and it it is done. Verse 8, get up, Jesus says, take your bed and walk. And at once, at once, the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Here is the the power and authority of King Jesus, the one through whom this world was spoken into being as we started our service, thinking about what grace 
and power, infinitely better than any earthly solution we might be clinging on for. I want to encourage you this morning, no matter what kind of person you might be, no matter even your feelings towards God, even now, no matter what your future struggles and mistakes will be, no matter how big and impossible your difficulty seems, trust in Jesus. Grace and power together. He's asking you, this morning. Do you want to know the fullness of restoration that I have for you? That's the second thing. The third aspect of this interaction is the warning that Jesus gives this man. You know, you might come back and say to me, why do you keep um, making this about ultimate healing and restoration? Isn't this just a story about one specific healing miracle of Jesus? But there's a warning that Jesus gives the man that shows he is not just interested in the temporary relief of this man or of us, even if it's from this day until our, the day when we take our last breath on this earth. God cares ultimately about our eternal well-being, our eternal standing before him. There seems to be a degree of concern that Jesus has about how this man is responding to God's work in his life. We just read it. Let's read it again. Verse 14. Jesus found him, sought him out in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now here again, we just want to take a brief parenthesis because I don't want you to stumble over the way Jesus puts it here. Jesus is not saying that all difficulty, strife, illness, and so on is a result of sin in our lives. He's not saying that. It's crystal clear from right throughout the pages of the Scripture where we see God's heart for the downtrodden. We see God's heart for the oppressed. And it's also crystal clear from John's Gospel. I mentioned John chapter 9. Well, in that story, a man who has been born blind, people come and say, hey, why is he blind? Is it because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And Jesus explicitly says, it's not anything to do with that. You're asking the wrong question altogether. So by no means should we assume anything when we come across people. We should not assume anything as to where sickness, tragedy, difficulty come from. But let's not swing the pendulum too far in that direction because there is a connection Jesus makes here. And the reality is there are some tragedies and struggles we face that are as a direct result of the sin in our lives. And if we're honest, then if you're a child of God, you'll know that there's mistakes you've made and you've borne the consequence of them. And that does sometimes happen. The point here in this warning that Jesus brings is that Jesus does not want just temporary relief of certain issues, struggles in our lives. An encounter with Jesus that lifts us up out of the ashes that should spark a life of devotion, a life of discipleship, a life of walking with Jesus, a life of pursuing the things of God, of sharing that goodness that God has shared with you with this world. And, and Jesus is warning here, if we reject that, then we are rejecting the giver of the fullness of life himself. Jesus is saying in that in that eventuality, something even worse than decades of suffering 
is coming. I mean, there's not, there's not much worse than decades of suffering, but Jesus is saying, sin no more or something worse is coming. Friends, we need to hear God's warning. Jesus' desires for us extend far beyond temporary peace and flourishing, even a lifetime of such things. He desires for us to be brought in fully to the amazing life that we can know in him, to be saved from that eternal judgment that would face anyone who pushes the giver of life away and to know amazing eternal life in him. We need to heed that warning. So Jesus' question, his grace and power, his warning, finally we see in this encounter Jesus' ongoing passion for our freedom in him. Again, we're gonna see here that it's not just about this one encounter. We are caught up in this, dear friends. Jesus, despite this man's reaction to him, Jesus was not swayed from his work. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. <laughs> Dan's quite right. Where you divide this passage is debated, and I wasn't sure quite where to stop this week and, and, and start next week, because we get into an amazing teaching about the way that the Father and the Son work together. But the ESV closes this section here, and I think it's helpful, actually, because this points to the fact that Jesus is still at work in this world. God is at work in this world, but there is a spiritual battle going on that we need to have our eyes open to. And there are people and there are spiritual forces who would seek to stop God from accomplishing his work. Even here this morning, I believe God desires for us to know healing and wholeness in him. And the enemy will do all that he can to stop that from happening. And it might be as ridiculous as what we see in this passage. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who has been healed, it's the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. I mean, talk about missing the point. This man had just been healed. He was walking in their presence and they're angry about some silly rule that, by the way, was not from the mind and heart of God. It was a rule that they had made up enemies of God will throw all sorts of things at us to keep us from knowing the freedom that we have in Jesus. And the encouragement at the end of this passage is Jesus is committed to fulfilling God's work in bringing freedom and wholeness and salvation in him. Jesus faces this potential blockage to the work that he is doing. And even though he knows that this persecution is going to increase and increase again and again, even to the point of his death. Look what he says in verse 17. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Dear friends, the father is still working today. Turn over to chapter 6. Look at verse 37 of chapter 6. Listen to these beautiful words that Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
So that's all of us now we're talking about. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father, of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. We can count ourselves part of those beautiful words that Jesus is talking about. We can know this true, eternal, lasting healing, perfect wholeness and peace. This is the will of God the Father for you. So friend, this morning, look to Jesus and believe. Again, I just love the profundity and complexity and mystery of what John's gospel lays before us. This interaction of father and son. And then just the simplicity of this is the will of the Father. Look to the Son and believe. We can all do that this morning. Look to this Jesus and believe in him. What do you desire today? Most ultimately, what do you desire? Jesus asks us, do you want to be healed? That is about more than just physical healing. I'll be honest, I think we could do better at praying for each other's physical healing. I think about a quarter of the gospel's content is about physical healing. We need to ponder, is that matching up with how we pray for one another's physical healing? But it is about more than just that. It's about more than emotional or psychological healing. I'm gonna show you a video which I think speaks to this. The other day I shared with a few folk a video featuring a testimony by Johnny Erickson Tada. We're not going to watch it all. It's 13 minutes, but I think we're going to watch about three or four minutes of it. Um, again, when the sermon goes up online, the link to the whole thing will be there for you to click on, and I really do encourage you to watch it, but let's, uh, let's watch that now. Thanks, Aidan. I once wrote a book called A Step Further, and that was back in 1978, and it was my effort to, quote, make sense of suffering. God allows suffering to deepen your faith. God allows suffering to refine your character. An alphabetical list of one, two, three, four, the 16 good biblical reasons as to why God allows suffering. And I remember passing it under the nose of Elizabeth Elliot, you know, the manuscript, I wanted her endorsement. And she said to me, I'll never forget it. It's exact, Johnny, it's true, but it's very technical. I was crushed. But that was in 1978, and now so many years later, I understand what she means. Because suffering and understanding it is not a matter of good biblical reasons as to what God is doing and why. I think the whole purpose behind it is to press us up against the Lord Jesus and not make suffering so much about us Oh, how will my faith be refined? How will my prayer life be deepened? What will I now understand about God's purposes? No, it's all about how can I hear his heartbeat? How can I resonate and identify with him and, and his sufferings? So somewhere there, there was a ping, like a change, and I realized it's not about me. My paralysis is about knowing Jesus better. And that, I think, is the summation of it all, just to know him better.
more than half a century of living in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic, a um, couple of battles with stage three cancer, pulmonary hypertension. I'm not even sure what that is, but it's my daily struggle with chronic pain that makes life hard. In fact, it makes my quadriplegia feel like a walk in the park. I can do quadriplegia, but I, it's hard to do pain. One of my favorite hymns, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart. And I do that a lot. I say to Jesus, here's my heart. And I manage my heart. I, when I say, here's my heart to Jesus, I, I say, heart? You are not going to go down that grim, dark road to depression. You have been there one too many times, and it's going to rip you, rip you apart. You, you, you don't want that. And so I, I've got to constantly be driving it like a sheepdog snapping at its heels down the road to Calvary every morning just to find Jesus in the midst of this discouragement or depression. I've got to tell my heart constantly, go find Jesus. He's your hope. He's the only one who will satisfy. And I'm... I'm grateful then that, uh, for that hymn. I remember I was a little girl and seeing these old women in church who would talk about how sweet the Savior was, and I think, hmm, okay, I guess old people talk that way. But of all the things I've learned about him, he is so sweet. He's so lovely, and he is so worth knowing. He's ecstasy beyond compare. And I would much rather be in this wheelchair knowing I'm like that than to be on my feet without him, honestly, I would. I would much rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus like that than be on my feet without him. That's incredible. That's true healing that sustains for decades and will one day be perfected for all eternity. And I'm smiling as I watch that because we have, to use her language, old ladies in our church who speak of and testify of the sweetness of fellowship with Jesus over many, many hard years. What do you desire? Do you want to be healed? Do you want that fullness of healing that comes through Jesus? He's here, and I just invite you, I plead with you, come, bring all your confusion, all your questions, all your difficulties to Jesus this morning. He will not turn you away. Let's pray. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Here's our hearts, Lord. Take and seal them Seal them for your courts above. 
thank you for those beautiful words from John chapter 6 where Jesus makes so clear that for those who are yours, God, no one will ever pull them away from your heart. We are safe and secure in you. And Lord, I pray that we would live like that's the case. I pray that we might find our day-by-day healing and wholeness, not in temporary relief from our difficulties. As kind you are, God, how often you do that for us, not least through your church and the way that we can minister to one another. We pray for more of that, but God, most ultimately, we pray that we would know that deep, eternal, profound, fundamental healing that is found in fellowship with beautiful, glorious, wonderful Jesus who we were just hearing about. May we be a community of faith that is able to hold on through the hardest of times because we know we have a, we have a Savior who will never let us go. Steadfast and strong and sure for us day by day and forever, evermore. Thank you, God. May we come to you now in this time. Help us, Holy Spirit, to bring our whole hearts to you in this time.